second week in a new series called Believe. Um, that's one of the reasons that Trisha is playing that song Creed by, uh, I think it's written by Rich Mullins. The lyrics are taken from the old ancient apostles creed. And I love the, the chorus of it. It's, it's, it's about, I believe this. And it's a reminder of the things that we believe. Because um, what we believe, in a lot of ways, makes who we are. And uh, the first 10 weeks of this series, we talk about ways that we want to think like Jesus. And we go over actual um, doctrinal things, kind of the core doctrines that we as believers believe that we need, to, we need to hold on to some core doctrines because Jesus believed certain things. We also believe the belief isn't enough, and just thinking that the right things isn't enough. And so the next 10 weeks, we talked about how we want to act like Jesus. And in that one, what we do is we look at the different, some of the, the disciplines that Jesus had in his life and why they were kind of non-negotiables in who he was. Um, if you've ever read through the Gospels, Jesus does some weird stuff sometimes, and you go, why would you walk away from healing? You have thousands of people coming to you, and you're healing everybody. And you walk away from it to go pray? Why, who would do that? Well, Jesus has some disciplines in his life, like seeking the God in prayer, that don't always make sense to us. And we want to say, okay, well, if we're going to believe like Jesus, we don't just think like him, but we also want to start putting in practice some of the disciplines. And the whole purpose of those two is for the last 10 weeks where we talked about being like Jesus. And that's where we take that kind of an in-depth look at what it looks like to take, okay, we believe the right things, we're thinking the right things, and we're putting together the right disciplines. But now what, it mean, what does it mean to integrate that into who we are? Um, we believe genuinely that God's not overly concerned about what we do, but who we're becoming. Because he's given us the opportunity to become like Jesus. And that's what he's mostly concerned with, is us becoming like Jesus. So last week we talked about um, who, who is God. We answered the question, who is God? We talked about how he is a, a triune God, a big confusing word called the Trinity, where three persons become one person. And there's a lot of really bad analogies out there to try and make it easy for you to understand what it is, but none of them really grasp what the Trinity is because the Trinity can't be grasped easily in an illustration. It's not an egg. There's the yolk, there's the shell, there's the... No, that's not God. It's, you know, some people say, well, it's like a person. Like, Mike, you're a father and you're a son and you're... A... No, God isn't doing three different things as one person. He's three different people. And ultimately what the Bible says, which makes no sense to us, is it tries to rewrite math. And it says that three equals one. Now wrestle with it. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the, the Son. The Son is God, but he's not the Father. So there's three distinct people that are all one. Good luck with that. Wrestle with that one. <laughs> Sometimes we, we trust in things about God that we don't fully understand. And today uh, we're talking about the next element of our belief, and that's a personal God. A personal God. And I was not excited to teach this one. Let me tell you why. Um, it's not that I don't believe this. I do believe it. But I believe we're kind of in a culture right now where we've taken the idea of a personal God, and we've really run with it. So now, I wouldn't say personal God. I'd say like boyfriend God. Like we have boyfriend Jesus. If you go to youth groups nowadays, it's boyfriend Jesus which means Jesus is mostly concerned about your feelings. He's mostly concerned and make sure you don't get hurt or don't have to do anything uncomfortable. And he's here to cheer you on all the time. I call him boyfriend Jesus. Obviously, for a dude, it's a little uncomfortable. Um, the other one I call him is buddy Jesus. I feel like in our culture, we've taken the personalized Jesus so far as that he's buddy Jesus. Buddy Jesus tells us what we want to hear. 
You know, buddy Jesus, I'm like, I'm struggling with this. Buddy Jesus is like, don't, don't, don't struggle with that, dude. Don't worry about it. It's all good. That's buddy Jesus. And I feel like our culture and a lot of our worship songs are really boyfriend Jesus and buddy Jesus. And I've always struggled with it. Last week, I actually really enjoyed last week because last week, I, I got to take some time and study the grandeur of God. I got to be kind of humbled and in awe of how big God is. And I like that because God is big. But sometimes we talk about the personalized God, I, I struggle with it because I don't want a boyfriend, Jesus. <laughs> Often I don't want to I don't want a buddy Jesus either. I want to I want to I want a best friend Jesus who's gonna tell me hard things that I don't want to hear sometimes. But I don't want the modern worship song. Jesus is your boyfriend, best friend, Jesus. I, I didn't want that. I, I, and so I struggle with this. But you know what? Throughout this series, God really checked my heart. Because there is an element, a personalized element of our God that I was reminded of. No, I don't believe he's boyfriend Jesus. No, I don't believe he's buddy Jesus. But I do believe there's elements of a personalized God that at different times in our life, we need to experience a different element of God. Jesus, at some point, he called that he said that he was the shepherd and that we are the sheep, showing that sometimes in our relationship with him, we need to just we need to hear his voice and we need to follow him. Is he always the shepherd and only the shepherd? No, that's just one way that he described his personalized relationship with his people. At another time, he called himself the groom and we were the bride. Well. There is a time in our relationship with God when sometimes we need to remember that he cherishes us and he looks after us like a groom does the bride. Is that what he always is? No. But that is part of the way he described himself. There is a time where he says that he's the master and we are the slaves. We are the servants. Now, if I ran with that one, we'd be in trouble. But there is a time when we remember that sometimes we have to trust even when we don't understand. And, and you know what? The buddy Jesus doesn't always work in that scenario. But we need to remember there is a time in our personal relationship when he's that. And then the most popular one that Jesus talks about is how he exemplifies the father-son relationship. And he shows us that part of the personalized relationship of God is sometimes it's like a father and a son. Where fathers do hard things sometimes, but it's always because they absolutely and unreservedly love their children. What father wouldn't give his son or daughter good things? And that's part of the personalized God. Now, one of the reasons that I struggled with it is, if I was honest, God checked my heart on this this week. Um, when I sometimes think about my relationship with God, I often, the only word I can come up with, CEO Jesus. I feel like sometimes I believe in a CEO Jesus. And let me explain. I, when I was in high school, all through high school, I worked at Smith's Food and Drug. You might have heard of it. They've got a couple stores. And I was a bagger, and then I, was, and then I worked in the front end, and then I worked in the pharmacy. And in those three or four years that I was there, um, I don't know if every chain does this, but Smith's Food and Drug, their CEO would come through. They would call them walkthroughs. And the CEO of the company would walk through like every store all the time. That was like all they did. He would walk through his stores. And I remember that there was only a couple times when it was like a, a blind walkthrough. Like we didn't know and suddenly the CEO was in the store and everyone's like, oh, be on your best behavior is here. Usually it was planned. And they would say, the CEO's coming by today. We got a phone call. He's coming by tomorrow. And what do you think we did when we knew the CEO was coming by? Yeah, we would sweep all of a sudden. And we would clean. And we would take the bruised apple and turn it over so you couldn't tell it was bruised. 
and we would be on our best behavior. And if your uniform didn't look good, they would literally hand you a brand new shirt that you didn't pay for, and they would say, oh, put this on. Because the CEO was here. Now, none of us had a personal relationship with the CEO. He didn't come up and go, let's go have coffee. How's your mom? No. It was very professional. He would come in and he would look at your department and then he would say something to the manager and he would keep moving forward. When he came, I knew that I wanted him to be proud of what I did. I was hoping that in some little way he would notice me, but they never do because he's got hundreds and hundreds of stores to look after. It's just a walkthrough. And I realized that when, as we were going, as I was studying for the personalized God for this message, I realized that I struggle with the personalized God because I often see Jesus as the CEO where I think I believe in grace, but mostly I just want him to be proud of me. And I don't really expect him to be, have a relationship. I just want him to go, Mike, here's what I asked you to do. Just go ahead and get it done. We have a system in place, Mike. If you just work within the system, it'll all work out. And I realize that that's, that's kind of how I've been seeing Jesus. Where I go, I don't, I don't need to cuddlies. I don't need to feel good. I just need to know this is what he asked me to do, and I'm going to do it. And so when he comes, he can go, you did it. The system's working. That's all I wanted. But as I started studying this, I started realizing that when I see Jesus as a CEO, so many of the personalized things that I miss from him. Some people, when they look at God, they don't see him as a CEO. They see him as more of a cosmic vending machine. In the sense that this is how worship of God was through most of time and through many of the religions today. If, if you were to dumb it down, God is just one big cosmic vending machine where you have to find out how many quarters to put in to get him to deliver what you want. Does that make sense? And people would say, well, I, God, I want it to rain on my crops this year. And they would say, oh, if you want that, you need to put in this many. And then he'll do it. Well, there's no relationship there. It was just this idea, if I can get God's favor somehow, he's going to love me and he's going to pour himself into me. I just need to win God's favor somehow. That's the cosmic vending machine. And then some people, they believe that God's more of a cosmic watchmaker. You know, if you ever get like a really expensive watch, they put all the mechanisms together and they put the motor together and then they wind it and then they just set it on the shelf and it's going to do its job because you did, you're, you're good at what you do. And a lot of people, when they think of God, they say, you know, I believe that God did something. I mean, look at there. He created something. But is he actively involved in my life? I don't know. I think he's just really good creator. And just like a really good watchmaker, if you spin it, if you create it right and then wind it up, it's going to kind of take care of itself. And a lot of people, I mean, I was blown away to, to read the statistics of how many people, how many evangelical, Jesus-believing Christians believe that God isn't really involved in our lives. He's more of just a really good creator. And he just makes sure that the clock, that the clock just keeps on spinning and it keeps ticking. And, and all the stuff that he created just kind of works together the way it's supposed to. Is he personal? I don't know. Probably not. But he's a good creator. I want you to open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Uh, and, and I want you to hold your, your fingers. We're going to have a lot of scripture today, but I want you to hold this one. While you're turning, the, the, John the Apostle, the, the longest living apostle, he got a revelation from God. He was banished to an island and he had a revelation, meaning that God showed him something. And at the beginning of this, he first showed himself who God, who Jesus really was. And then he started to write these letters to these churches. And, and there's seven different letters right here. But in this last letter, something really unique happens that I think plays really heavily into this idea of, of if we really believe we have a personalized God. 
So this says Revelation 3.20. I am actually going to start in verse um, 15. Uh, you can stay on 20 or you can move to 15 with me. I'll give you that freedom. But in Revelation 3, he says, I know your deeds. Mind you, he's talking to a church. He's not talking to random people. He's talking to a church in the city called Laodicea. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were one of one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those who I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Now, I know that part is pretty harsh, but listen to this. Verse 20 says, here I am. I'm going to say that again. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Let's pray. Lord God, as we, as we look at what it means, what you revealed to us, that your, your character as a, as a God that is not far away, but a God that is close, a God that is not distant or distracted, but a God that cares, pays attention, and loves us. Lord, I pray that you would show and reveal each one of us something. If, any, if, if we have, just like I have, if we've mistaken who you are or maybe ain't leaned a little too heavily in one of your characteristics and not another, pray that you would correct that today. Lord, I pray as we look at what you told the church in Laodicea, pray that you would have something to teach us here today as well. We thank you and love you and just pray that all these things in your name. Amen. Now, I know this message isn't called Don't Be Lukewarm. That's not the message. But what happens here is this church in Laodicea is functioning. In fact, it's functioning so well that they're happy and comfortable. They said, we've done well for ourselves. We don't need anything. Well, then the strange thing happens. Jesus shows up to the door of his church the metaphorical door of his church. And instead of barging in, he knocks on the door. Now Mike, who believes that Jesus is a CEO, says that, you know, in this scenario, if I was Jesus, I would knock on the door with a warrant. And I would say, I know what's going on in there, and I have a warrant, and we're going to come check things out. Because that's the Jesus that I have. And God really corrected me on this, is when Jesus knocks on the door, he says, here I am. I love how NIV puts an exclamation point on it. I'm here. You remember you're my church? You're, supposed to, you're my church, but I wasn't invited in yet. You've learned how to do this without me. And it says, instead of coming in and condemning them, he says, if you invite me in, guess what we're going to do? We're going to eat. See, when I think of what God's going to do when I don't invite him in, I think that Jesus is going to show up and he's going to say, like I said, he's going to knock on the door and say, I have a warrant. We're, we're here. I have, I have the right to come look around. And Jesus is saying, I've already seen what's in there. But I want to come and eat with you. See, in our culture, when I say I want to eat with you, it's like pick up Taco Bell on the way home. Or we're going to eat in front of the TV. But see, back then, 
when he said, I want to come have, the word is actually supper. When I want to come have supper with you, Jesus is saying, I'm ready to come in and have relationship with you. See, back then, supper was like a three-hour meal. It was a long one. And you would sit around, you would eat, you would share, you would have conversation, you would laugh. You know, there's one part in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where the Pharisees were mad at Jesus because he was reclining at the table. Well, yeah, he was reclining because he was full. He was making room. We've all done it. Because <laughs> he was having a good time. And this one reminded me that even in the midst of a situation where I feel like Jesus needs to kick in the door, he's still knocking. And what he's asking us for is he's not asking us to, to, to you know, explain yourself. He's saying, hey, whenever you're ready, I'm, I'm ready to come back in and have a meal with you. I'm ready to have a relationship with you. I want to show you three things, three ways that we know that God is a personal God. Three ways. The first way we know that God is a personal God is because God sees me. God sees me. And, and, and I, I want to add this word in there. God really sees me. Let me explain that. God really sees me. Hebrews 4.13, uh, Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is like a double-edged sword. And then in 13, he goes on and says that we are all naked and exposed before him who's gonna, who we're going to give account. Um, God doesn't just see me like a CEO sees me. A CEO is going to see what I let him see, right? Even the best employee can hide something from the CEO. You know, nowadays with the Patriot Act and stuff, everyone's worried about the government seeing them. They're seeing what I'm doing. They have a drone that sees me. But, every, but they're only seeing one part. See, God doesn't just see me. God really sees me. Do you know that God is seeing everything? All the stuff that you try and hide, God sees them. I don't know about you, I have a few really close relationships, and can I be very honest that I still don't tell them everything? How many of you are married? How many of you keep your hands up? This is a trick. How many of you tell your spouse everything? Okay, you're honest. Awesome. I don't. I wish I did. But even, even the most important relationship I have on earth, I still keep stuff from her. Do you know that, that God sees you? And he sees everything. Um, the King David, when, uh, when King David, before he became king, one of the descriptions that God have, has had for him that you'll see all through scripture is he says that David was different from King Saul because D David was a man after God's own heart. It says that, that man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And if you look through Psalms, you can see David sharing the depths of his heart. And I want to share with you something that David says, where he explains in poetry during a time of turmoil, he shares how much God sees. And I want you, I'm going to read this through. It's in Psalms 139, but I'm going to read this from the message translation. I don't utilize the message translation a lot, but I really liked how they wrote this one. Listen to these words from David. God, investigate my life. Get all the facts firsthand. I am an open book to you. Even from a distance, you know what I'm thinking. You know when I leave and when I come back. I'm never out of your sight. You know everything I'm going to say before I start my first sentence. I look behind me and you're there. Then up ahead and you're there too. 
Your reassuring presence coming and going. This is too much, too wonderful. I can't take it all in. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a moment. You're already there watching. Then I said to myself, oh, he sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in the light. It's a fact. Darkness isn't even dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. Oh, yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit. How I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you. The days of my life all prepared before I'd even lived one day. And then I'm going to skip down to the end of this passage. Investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. God sees us. And I love that David, a guy who's known for having a heart after God, what he sees is that God sees everything and nothing's hidden. And and part of recognizing, having a personalized God, is recognizing that God really sees me. He sees me as I really am. The next one is God desires to be close to me. God desires to be close to me. I want to read you one of my favorite passages out of Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, there's this small little story hidden in the Apostle Paul's life. And in this, I don't know if if we we just don't recognize, in this he makes a huge doctrinal declaration that I think has been encouraging to me since I first read it. In Acts chapter 17, um, Paul is in Athens on his missionary journey. And when he's there, he realizes that there's countless idols, countless um, um, false gods, imitation gods. But he saw one god or one inscription that said to the unknown God, which, which they obviously made because they, maybe they missed a God. When there's 4,000 gods in a city, you've got to make sure you don't miss one. So they made an, an inscription to the unknown God just in case they, didn't, they, did, they missed one. And in this, Paul says, I want to tell you who that unknown God is. And in, starting in verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And listen to this. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from any of us. See, that's a really big way to say it. But ultimately what Paul says is this. The God who created the universe also created you. And he, he, he didn't do it meaninglessly. He says that he knows exactly when you were born, when you lived. The time of your dwelling is what he says. And then the boundaries, which is a nice way of saying where. So in essence, Paul was saying, did you know that God, the one who created the universe and doesn't need you at all because he is God and he doesn't need you to worship him for him to keep his godhood? 
That God knew exactly when you were going to be born, in what family you were going to be born in, at what time you were going to be born into that family, at what time in history. He knew that you were going to be born in that family in America. He knew that your dad was going to struggle with this, or your dad had these strengths, or your brothers and sisters had these experiences. Do you know that God knows when and where you are? And it's not a mystery to him. And it's not an accident. And the reason that he knows all of those things, he says at the end, he says, in the hopes that you would seek him and find him. But he's not far. So even though I know, he says, God knows exactly when and where you are in time. It's not an accident. It's not a secret. You didn't surprise God when you made that decision or that decision. Or when your family moved. You didn't have to send God a letter letting him know your new address like Santa. He knows where you are. And not only that, but where you are right now is exactly where you need to be to seek and find him. But the, the, the secret is he's not far. He's right there. He's waiting for you. See, God desires for us to be close to him, but he's not going to force us. You ever heard the phrase that you could run a million miles from God, but when you turn around, he's going to be right behind you? It, it doesn't matter where you've been, or where you're going, or the decisions you've made in your life, God wants to be close to you. He wants to be close to you. I think this is great because it's the God's goal with us. Like I said, it's he's not a, a policeman knocking on the door with a warrant. He's coming to dwell and eat and have a relationship with us. He wants to laugh and talk and know us. And he wants us to be close to him. And for far too long, just like the church in Laodicea, our church today isn't that different. Not necessarily our church, but the church. Is we can do the church thing, we can, we can follow the rules, we can have the practices and the systems in place, and, and, and yet not invite Jesus in to come and be close to us. We can have a church that looks like it has everything going together. And at the same time, we're not inviting the person we created the church for to actually join us. He desires to be close to us. The next one is, God loves me. God loves me. See, this isn't just some pithy, weak love. God loves us with a love we could never understand. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I pray that you may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. I'm going to read that again. I pray that you may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses understanding that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, this is when I, when I kind of take a step back and I, and I look at the whole picture now. He sees me. He sees all of me. I mean, he really sees me. Some of you, your really sees me aren't that bad. You're like, no, I'm really transparent. This really is who I am. Okay. 
God really sees me. He sees my idolatry. He sees the things I, I worship outside of him. He sees the things I lust after. He sees the, the, the secrets I hold from those I love. God really sees me. And he desires to be close to me in spite of what he sees. And he doesn't just desire to be close to me and desire to have a relationship with him and have an open door to really get to know him and to sit at his table and to laugh and talk with him. But then on top of that, now that he's seen it all, he still chooses to love me. He still says that in spite of all the things that I can see, you're still worth loving. I think one of the things I, I, I always struggled with the personal God is I don't like that he's going to love me when I fail. I want him to be mad at me because I'm mad at me. I don't want him to love me when I let my family down because I'm struggling with guilt, so I want him to feel guilty too. But we live with, we serve a God who loves us so much that all those things that make me shameful and all those things that make me guilty and all those things that make me feel like God should be mad at me, Jesus died on the cross to, to take the price for those things. He says, I'm not mad because I already died for you. Now all I have is love for you. All I have is love for you. The last one is, not only does he have love for us, but he has a plan for us. Jeremiah 29, 11, very popular verse. I'm going to read through, through verse 14. I'm not going to stop at 11 because this is really important. Jeremiah 29, 11, the prophet tells us this. As God speaks, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The reason I had to read the rest of that is not just because it has to be read in context. But there were some key words that I hope if you've never heard them, they caught your ear. He said, I'm going to bring you back from the places I banished you. See, Revelation chapter 3, when he's talking to the church of Laodicea, he says, those whom I love, I discipline. And I think it's really important that when we talk about the love of God, that we do not mistake what he means when he says he loves us. See, a father loves us enough to tell us that something's going to kill us. And he loves us enough to tell us that you were in banishment. You were away from me because you were choosing to worship something smaller than me. God loves us enough that his plan for us, I absolutely believe that God redeems us and he uses all of the, the ups and downs and the lefts and rights and the, and the brokenness of our life. He uses all those things for his good plan. I absolutely believe that. But I also believe that this plan that he has for us also means that sometimes when we feel broken, sometimes when we feel burdened, sometimes when we feel like, like God, where are you? The reason we feel that is because God's trying to get our attention. Because he loves us. God's trying to let us know that we've been trusting in something less than him, and we want him to bless it, if that makes sense. I'm going to worship a golden calf that isn't alive, and it's making me feel like it's not working, but I want you to bless it, and I want you to, I want you to pour out your power on it so that I feel better about my idolatry. And God loves us too much to let us do that. 
Part of him having a plan for us, just like this passage, he says, I do have a plan for you, and I am going to bring you back from your slavery. I am going to bring you back from all those things, but you have to recognize why you're experiencing it. See, we live in a culture when we say God loves you, it means that he loves you, and, and all good is going to happen. It doesn't matter what you worship or what you love or where you invest your life. And, and, and that's, not the, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, I love you so much that I'm not going to shower goodness when you worship something smaller than me. Folks, we were created by God. When he created us, he created us and designed us uniquely for a relationship with God. Some people call it the God-sized hole. We have a God-sized hole in us. And, and since the beginning of creation, we've been pouring stuff smaller than God into that God-sized hole, trying to get it to fill us up. Since the beginning of creation, we've been pouring stuff into this, saying, why is it just, it's an empty pit, it's not, it's, it's just, everything's just falling in there and disappearing. And since the beginning, we've been following and chasing after stuff that's smaller than God, that's smaller than Jesus, and expecting it to do Jesus-sized things in our life, and it will never happen, ever. And then we feel broken and frustrated and unforgiving and resentful. And we go, why, God, why do I feel this way? And he said, because you're trusting in something smaller than me to do something that only I can do. And God loves us enough to tell us that. If, if you struggle with recognizing it and grasping the love of God, or maybe you have a love of God that has nothing to do with your actual circumstances, maybe part of it is because you're, trying, you're asking something smaller than God to do something that only God can do. And he's saying those are the consequences of that. You feel those things. You, you struggle with brokenness. You struggle with unforgiveness and resentment because you're trusting in something smaller than me. He loves us enough to do that. And in spite of all that, he has a plan. And then the last thing is, and I, I, I believe this with all my heart, God's plan for our life is bigger than your plan for your life. God's plan for Mike's life is going to be greater than Mike's plan, if I would just trust him. And as I get to know God, and I spend time with God, and I, I engage a relationship with God, I get to see God's plan for my life come out. So, Let's recap. He knows me better than I know myself. He sees my secrets, my passions, my fears, my insecurities, and my desires. He sees everything. He also knows my heart. He knows what I'm really searching for. He created me. He knows that nothing can fill the God-sized hole in my life but him. He desires to be close to him, intimate and free and unashamed. <coughs> He wants me to experience true life. He wants me to laugh, talk, and enjoy him. Just like I would at a dinner table. He loves me. He loves me so much that he died in my place. He loves me sacrificially and unreservedly. And he invites me to experience his love. To live in this love and be shaped by this love. He loves me too much to watch me be destroyed by imitations of him false hopes, sin, and broken promises. He will never stop trying to get my attention when I place my faith in sand castles and straw houses rather than the solid rock because he knows everything be besides him will fail. And he has a plan for me. His plan is going to use all that I've learned and experienced, witnessed and encountered, all the things of my life that have shaped me to change the world in his name. I get to know my God. I'm going to show you, we have a quick little video from somebody I love, but as we go out, 
If God's not a personal God to you yet, if you don't have a personal Jesus, and I'm not talking about a buddy Jesus, though sometimes maybe he's your buddy. I'm not talking about a boyfriend Jesus, because that literally is unbiblical. But if, if, if you haven't engaged a relationship with God where you recognize that he sees everything and he still loves you, and he's called me to be a part of what he's doing and his plan, don't leave here today without doing it. I don't do altar calls very often, and I'm not going to do a regular one, but I am going to do something. I'm going to ask everybody to lower their heads and close their eyes. And I just want you to pray with me. Everybody, I will ask all of you to pray with me so that if, if, if you're praying this for the first time or if you're asking God for the hundredth time, I don't want you to feel like we're all staring at you. But if you haven't taken a chance to say, God, I want, I want a personal relationship with you. I want, I, I, I want you, Jesus. This is the time to do that. Please bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life. The door is open. You already see everything. There's nothing hidden to you. And Jesus, despite what you see, despite the failures and the brokenness and the wickedness, you still love me and gave your life for me. Lord Jesus, I want to place my trust in you. Lord, come in to my life and dwell with me. I love you. I'm sorry for my sins. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.